Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Mark Reinfeld, the award-winning vegan chef and author of numerous books, including Healing the Vegan Way, Plant-Based Eating for Optimal Health and Wellness. Reinfeld has also forged a reputation as a noted educator and is offering an array of cooking workshops this summer. Among those are the virtual four-week vegan cooking immersion, uh, which is virtual training presenting four-plus hours per day of kitchen time with Reinfeld and other top-tier guest instructors, a six-part introduction to successful plant-based living guided by Ashley Boudet, Andy and Reinfeld, a.k.a the doctor and the chef and a three-day in-person culinary jam in which participants which is limited to six travel to colorado to join reinfeld in the kitchen directly and work on honing a number of sophisticated techniques we hear about these workshops and other topics try to pin mark down on some of his favorite dishes maybe try to pry a recipe or two out of him when i speak with mark reinfeld in a few moments here on talking animals on wmnf later in today's program i'll talk with julia wang birdcast project leader at the cornell lab of ornithology the lab's BirdCast and Lights Out, another program Wang oversees, are connected to the recently completed annual journey of billions of migratory birds, cultivating the safety of those tracks, as well as the science and data collection research, which seeks to additionally protect the birds and further enhance their welfare during future migrations. We'll have more details a bit later in the show. Right now, though, let's discuss vegan food, vegan cooking, and workshops to learn about both with Mark Reinfeld. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813 Three nine nine six six three. Emailing DJ at WMNF.org or texting eight one three four three three zero eight eight five. This is Mark Reinfeld back on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Mark. Hey, Duncan. Good morning. So great to be on your show again. So great to have you again. And so here's the thing: I was thinking we've had multiple conversations on the show over the years, often about a book you just published at that moment. But in thinking about today's conversation, I realized I don't have a great sense of the Mark Reinfeld story, which somehow I think we focused on other things. So while we'll absolutely discuss your summer workshops and other topics along the way, of course, maybe we can start out addressing some of your background and history. For example, just since we've been doing interviews on the show over the years, you've lived on Kauai in South Florida and now near uh, Boulder, Colorado. Where did you actually grow up? Uh, I actually grew up in Stony Brook, uh, Long Island in New York. Okay. And I went to went to college there as well, up in uh, Albany, SUNY Albany. Okay. And when you were a kid, before you got to college, what was the prevailing attitude in your family about food? What were typical meals like? Uh, well, we definitely were not plant-based. Uh, we were, I'd say, not really into junk food that much, but yeah. uh, there was definitely, it was not plant-based. So yeah, I, I had my share of McDonald's and Burger King uh, growing up. I, actually, when I was, I studied in London for a year, I would find myself, found myself in McDonald's uh, very often, more often than I would like to admit, but it, it was definitely part of my upbringing. Right, sort of the, the classic diet there, plus some fast right. food, it sounds like, to fill the gap. So when did you first become interested in food and cooking then? Well, I always loved cooking as a child, and my grandfather was a renowned 
renowned chef and ice carver in the 50s. He was carving ice until his dying days. He's into his 80s and from his wheelchair with an oxygen tank and a chainsaw. Wow. He was actually based in South Florida. He would do like elaborate ice carvings and uh, he did a life-size Michelangelo's David for a skate club in Fort Lauderdale. So he was an early color uh colorful character and a no kidding influence for me growing up yeah that's quite a visual that you created of him uh <laughs> with the uh chainsaw and the oxygen and the whole shebang all all in one image man that's uh that's yeah. something so so, so, that's, so uh, i always just loved cooking and then after uh i had i went to law school for a semester and realized that that wasn't my path and then i uh, moved out to California, and I started working in a commercial kitchen. And at that point, I just uh, I had become a vegetarian on a kibbutz in Israel. So I just my whole professional culinary career has been uh, vegetarian and then vegan. Um, very shortly after. And it also sounds like there's a lot of travel in the Mark Reinfeld story. I mean, even start off with just a few places that I knew about, but then now you've mentioned California, Israel, probably some other places along the way. So. Yeah. Some of that's, I guess, just uh, wanderlust, and some of it's just pursuing some of the interests that you had at various times. Yeah, I studied my junior year in London, and I did a lot of traveling. I did the, if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium type of travel. I, I hit a lot of places, and after I graduated college, I took a year off and traveled through Europe. And I uh, was on a kibbutz in Israel and in India and Nepal, and that's where I became vegetarian. And my love for global cuisine was born uh, during during those travels. Yeah, that sounds like there'd be all kinds of ways to foster that. And it's probably just generally that kind of travel, that kind of global travel, probably, even if it's not by design at the time, probably a great background to have for a chef. Yeah, and it's just, it kind of formed my food philosophy, which I call like vegan fusion cuisine, where it's really a celebration of not only the world's cuisine, but also the wisdom and the sacred sites and all of those things that unite unite humanity and bring us together. That's been a part of my, my culinary path as well. Yeah. And so I think one of the first times we talked was, I think, in the wake of a cookbook that sort of really focused on the vegan fusion thing. So when exactly, given all these travels and the earlier interest in food influenced by the uh, colorful grandfather, etc., when did you start seeing signs that working in this realm might be a calling? Uh, that That's a great question because I, I often, you know, encourage people to really try to tune in to what their unique purpose is. And I think that developed over over time for me, just the connection that I feel when I'm cooking and I love teaching and sharing information. So I, while I was working in the health food store, I worked for a few years in San Diego before branching off and forming my own private chef and consulting service mm -hmm. in the late 90s. Uh, I think that was the point when I realized that it was something that I wanted to make uh, my livelihood from and a career out of when I started my own company. So was there a, a moment before that, like a, a catalyst in particular when you're working, like, say, at the health food store where you thought, hey, I've done a lot of stuff. I've traveled. I've covered a lot of ground, literally and figuratively. This is my path. I think I've honed in on exactly where I want to go. I think it was uh, when I branched off and I realized this was in the late 90s that there was that's when I started doing more corporate consulting, and that's when I realized that there was a need, especially in the kind of the mainstream corporate culinary world for plant-based education and training. Yeah. Uh, a lot of chefs, I've, I've worked with many chefs, amazing chefs over the years, and have done 
consulting projects for some of the larger food service providers that they're great chefs. They just, their education didn't include knowing the difference between tofu and tahini. And so when I realized there was that big gap, I think that's when I started becoming more enthusiastic about creating a career uh, through plant-based education. Yeah. Well, they both begin with T if, if that's a start. <laughs> So this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Mark Reinfeld, the award-winning vegan chef and author of numerous uh, books, cookbooks, other kinds of books. Reinfeld has also forged a reputation as a noted educator and is offering an array of cooking workshops this summer, both virtual and in person. And uh, we're going to obviously spend some time talking about those. But if you'd like to ask Mark a question about vegan food or vegan cooking or offer a comment on those kinds of topics, uh, please call 813-239-9663. Email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So given all the years you've been ensconced in the vegan world, uh, you're particularly well positioned, it seems like, to observe cultural shifts that may have occurred regarding attitudes about vegan food. So mm. I'd be really interested to hear like, what kind of observations you have now, just given how many years you've been in this world. And it seems to me, at least, just without the kind of expertise that you have, there's been a lot of changes and a lot of embracing culturally that would have been hard to imagine 10, 15, 20 mm-hmm. years ago. So any observations yeah. you can share on that? That's a wonderful question. Yeah, there's been, I mean, cataclysmic changes, I would say, as you probably are well aware of, too, just the social acceptance, the the way that the, <clears throat> just the number of Google searches, the amount of venture capital money, the number of vegan restaurants, cookbooks, it's kind of an explosion. And I do feel like I've been feeling we're at the cusp of this revolution and change for quite a while. I do feel like it's reaching that tipping point where eating plant-based is definitely not as fringe as it used to be. I think there's surveys that show majority of people are looking to include at least more plant-based foods in their diet. Uh, Vegan is not necessarily a four-letter word anymore in a lot of communities. I think it used to have the connotation of granola eating and hippie hippie lifestyle, which it still is, and that's fine. (laughs) It is that too, but I think it's more accepted in mainstream media, uh, the medical community. I just feel like it's a massive tide is uh, turning in the direction of really embracing, if not a totally plant-based lifestyle, at least having a good amount of our food come from plants. Yeah. Well, a couple of things you said there strike me as things that you don't want to follow up with or things that we talked about, I think, in a previous conversation. Like when you talked about doctors, I remember one of the conversations we had over the years was noting that medical school curriculum didn't really have much at all, really, about nutrition, much less anything about the virtues of any kind of plant-based living and diet. Mm-hmm. Do you see, from what you can tell, do you see at least some medical school curriculums have shifted more in that direction? Well, I know. I would say definitely yes in that. And uh, there's uh, the Tulane and Harvard have culinary medicine programs. And you know, if I could read the tea leaves, you'll, you'll be hearing a lot more about culinary medicine and doctors and chefs and just going. It's actually returned to the origins of medicine where Hippocrates said, let food be your medicine. So I do feel like that that's coming full circle. And yeah. you have people like uh, Dr. Kim, Kim Williams, who is the president of the American College of Cardiology say that uh, cardiologists are either vegan or they haven't seen the data. And so I think we're, we'll be seeing that a lot in terms of especially the big ones like heart, heart disease, diabetes, high cholesterol, a lot of these 
ills that are afflicting our society. I'm fairly confident that over time they are going to be seen as predominantly uh, food, foodborne, uh, food-related uh, conditions that we could uh, really treat and reverse through uh, plant-based diets. Not in 100% of the cases, but in, in many, many of them. Yeah, well, there's certainly, as you point out, there's certainly ailments and conditions that both could be caused or at least exacerbated by a diet that's not really paying any attention to plant-based. And I think we've all seen films and read books about what can happen with certain kind of uh, conditions if you do embrace uh, a plant-based diet and how much those things can be halted or even reversed. So mm-hmm. it does seem like, it sounds like from what your standpoint, especially uh, watching this more closely than I am probably, that the medical community is really embracing this or starting to in a major way. Yeah, we still have a very, very long way to go. But, yeah. Uh, you know, it's way, it's just a dramatic increase than even, say, five years ago. I think it's really starting to accelerate a great, greater uh, velocities. Yeah, and I would think as, as more and more major institutions do embrace that, that can't help but influence some of the other ones that, whether they are geographically or otherwise, might not have been, has been initially as inclined to embrace that. But you, th- you say, hey, if Harvard Medical School or this institution is doing this, maybe we should take a serious look at uh, mm-hmm. adapting our curriculum. So so it's probably still coming, just maybe more slowly in cer- at certain schools or certain areas. But sounds super encouraging, though. Yes. Well, I like to try to hold a positive attitude whenever possible. There we go. That's why we like to have you on the show, Mark. (laughs) So beyond those kind of attitudinal shifts and some of the actual things we're talking about in terms of med school and other kinds of curriculum, what other changes in the landscape of vegan food and how it's prepared would you point to in just in recent years? I would say, I mean, I would say just as far as the dining scene it is more of a there there's more options for vegans i think now than than there's ever been before and as you know there's the the analog products or the the, the faux meat or and dairy and things like that are really taking off and there's mixed opinions on on that i'm as i'm motivated a lot by just wanting people to uh, I have a love of animals, and so if whatever helps people not eat animals, I'm I'm in favor of. So yeah. If those those burgers help people eat one of those instead of an animal burger, I'm I'm a big fan. So you're on that side of it. The, there is seem kind of be a real philosophical divide amongst uh, you know, the vegan community about uh, those kind of meats and other things and burgers or whatever but it sounds like your thing is like hey if it if it gets you eating that way and there's less animal consumption sign me up yes i i like to say yeah there i just for me i found there's three three doors or three main reasons why people embrace the lifestyle one is the health or medical door one is the environmental or sustainability door and one is the the animal welfare door and so personally I went through the animal welfare door I know people that are really and for good reason embracing it for their health they're not like a highly processed veggie burger may not be the healthiest food in the world but I do consider it healthier than the animal based alternative so I think that that determines where those products 
kind of fit in depending on why you're eating this way. How, how you came to it, uh, yeah, yeah. kind of helps shape But that. once you get into the, the doors go into the same room, so I yeah. know a lot of people that they came in for health or medical reasons and then they learned about the environmental impact or the abuses in factory farming, and so eventually they can all kind of merge into one. Yeah, I've been really struck and kind of surprised sometimes about the vehemence of the people who are opposed to the kind of faux meat and burgers and whatever. I mean, I, I, I understand their thinking and their rationale, but it seems like that would be discouraging or off-putting to people that that you're actually trying to beckon into the tent, as it were. So yeah, I know a lot of people that have helped. It just takes the edge off if you're craving a burger, and you know there is this alternative that's plant-based. Having one, even if it's not the healthiest food, I call them transitional foods. So don't eat them all the time. Right. But every now and then, I think they're they're great. I'm I'm a big fan. If it helps with the hankering, let's take a call. Yeah. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with uh, Chef Mark Reinfeld. Yeah. Good morning. Um, my question is: Do you, does do you address um taking supplement to um to because you're cutting out a food group, is there a need for for any kind of supplementation? And if so, if you if you agree with that or if, or think that's correct, you address it in any of your books. That's a great question, and so I do feel like we're. I, I personally feel that supplementation uh, is important for most people. Uh, my wife. Uh, as a naturopathic doctor, we, we do uh, this program we're doing, Nourish Your Life, this uh, six-part series where I combine my culinary knowledge and she combines her nutritional knowledge. I do feel that they're helpful. We're not like, usually we like the whole food supplements, so we'll have like some powdered mixes that we add, uh, vitamin B12. There's some core nutrients that we would supplement uh but we're not overly supplementing but i think that it's i think it's a fine line but i'm in principle i'm not opposed to it at all and i think that because our soil has been depleted in so many ways i mean it would be nice to say we could get everything we need from all of our food but i think in the modern world i think uh careful supplementation is definitely helpful to maintain like a vibrant vegan lifestyle personally yeah yeah um i started a vegetarian diet when i was 18 and i'm mm. um, now uh 73 i have no, oh wow no health issues amazing never have um never sick i i, I think the last time i was sick was probably about 25 years ago i picked wow. up uh, like incredible a wow so apropos of your question to mark caller if i could have you over the years incorporated one supplements or any kind of things yeah. along yeah. with the actual diet yeah i take a lot of supplements okay i have mm. a uh, a separate refrigerator that's packed with supplements. <laughs> wow, okay. Dedicated fridge. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like it's working. Yeah, you yeah, know, I try to stay away from buying supplements out of China nowadays, mm-hmm. and I always look for um, organic. And I don't buy like pills. Some you have to right. get pill pill form mm-hmm. because they, you just can't get the powder. But I buy everything mm-hmm. in bulk. So you know, you get upfront the, the expenses a little bit, but um, in the long run, it's much much cheaper. Yeah, that's incredible. That's a great great testimonial. Yeah. yeah. All right, caller. Thanks so much for your call. That's really fascinating Thank to hear you. and good for you. I love yeah. your show. Thank you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so, uh, Mark, I'm going to take one more call. I'm going to quickly read. There's okay. a, always a wag, of course, weighing in. And this one says, and by way of email, says, I would like to see a vegan Iron Chef competition on TV. So there you go. But um, I think there is actually, there is some uh, vegan cooking challenge. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, no, I think this guy was going more for a gag, but I think you're right that there's oh, the actual thing. But um, okay, and uh, so actually, I think we lost the caller, but I think they're calling back. But uh, let's let's get in momentarily. I'm going to try to take one more quick call, and then we're going to get in some of the uh, the classes for sure. this summer. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Chef Mark Renfield. How's it going, Mr. Aaron? Hi, did you have a question or comment for Mark? Yes, sir. I was calling with the 2023 uh, Martin Luther King Parade. Are you familiar with it? Uh, okay, you, you've actually called an on-air uh, radio show right now, so we're happy to take oh, your call sorry. at the business office. That's okay. Thank, thanks so much for your call. So, Mark, let's talk about some of these things. Well, Martin that... Luther King has a great quote about nonviolence uh, since he came on. That uh, he and one of the quotes I refer to is that Martin Luther King said that the answer to all of our political and uh, moral problems is uh, is uh, nonviolence. So yeah. he is a big uh, proponent of, I think, the ahimsa or the nonviolent aspect of the plant-based lifestyle. For sure. So this, Just as a side note. Yeah, no, no. So this guy actually had more of a relevant call than, than it might have seemed at first, so for sure. <laughs> but uh, again, this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is award-winning vegan chef and author Mark Reinfeld, who is offering an array of college work, uh, not college, sorry, cooking workshops this summer. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing D at WMNF.org or texting 813-433-0885. So let's start, well, actually, you can say what one will start, but I was going to start with the virtual four-week vegan cooking immersion one, which um, starts later this summer. We should note that some of these are virtual, and one in particular, at least, is actually in person. So for people who say, yeah, I'd like to get kind of more uh, training and kind of get more uh, tools in my tool belt for vegan cooking, but I'm, I'm not still not keen about traveling somewhere or going somewhere. Yeah. To, to at least I, the bulk of these are be the case. Yeah, that's why the the virtual. Well, the the four week. Thank you for asking, Duncan. The four yeah. week challenges. Uh, it's something that I had uh, approved by the American Culinary Federation for 120 continuing education credits. It's for people who are really ready to do like a deep dive and carve out significant amount of time uh, to really dive into the techniques of plant-based cuisine. So it's uh, four hours a day for five days a week for four consecutive weeks. Yeah, that's serious business. It's a 20-day program, but we really take a deep dive and we cover palate development, recipe formulas, global cuisine. I have guest instructors teaching pastry and uh, bread baking. Um, Miyoko from Miyoko's uh, Creamery is going to be a guest presenter to have an exclusive Q&A with students. And um, this will be the third one of them that I've offered. And they've all been incredible experiences where people are able I keep the group size really small so I could meet people where they're at and help them go to the next level. I do weekly coaching calls with them. If you're interested in pursuing your culinary education further, you want to get out into the the, the world, the culinary world out there. So it's, it's been, I love that program. It's been a great uh, experience for me and the students. Yeah. So a couple of things. One is to find out more about these and other things. And we'll keep coming back to this. Chef Mark Reinfeld, R-E-I-N-F-E-L-D.com is the website where all that information about these courses and how to find out more and or register are all at that website, correct, Mark? Yes. Yes, okay, sir. so back to the cooking immersion one that you just described, which sounds significant and great. So, what kind? Of, what's the profile of someone that has been registering for that kind of class? What's their background? What's their experience level when they typically um, register for this kind of class? I've had people of varying degrees, like a registered dietitian, 
just took it because they wanted to incorporate the vegan cooking into their practice. Mm-hmm. I've had uh, a woman who's been in the industry for 30 years, but just wanted to kind of tap back into her creativity, people and career changes. I've had young millennials who just, they're passionate about uh, veganism and, and vegan cuisine. So it's people that are wanting to take, a again, like a deep dive. It's not like a casual uh just the kind of passing interest. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. If it's uh, four plus hours a day, five, five days a week for 20 days, I mean, these are people that are super committed. That's why I was interested in what the profile is because it feels like it would be people that are like on the cusp of already working in the field in some way, but on the cusp of maybe making some kind of career change or just trying to expand their repertoire, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And what I was thinking about it, because I, I really like the idea of the small group size and mentoring and coaching people along the way and uh it's something that like for people who are considering culinary school uh there's a lot of there's more and more programs that are plant-based yeah for culinary school but it's still a potentially nine-month commitment it's a it's a huge commitment of time and expenses to go to a full culinary program so my goal was to try to reach people who were considering it yeah and who would want to take a dive into it see if it's something they want to pursue further or some of the students found that well they after taking this they don't feel like they need to like go do that longer program they could just jump start and go look for a job in the industry right after this so oh, that's that, great that's kind of who i was thinking of for that. sure plus i would think I, that I personally, oh, oh go ahead sorry mark oh just that i feel that the chefs have the possibility to really help accelerate this transition because yeah. if the chefs learn how to prepare vegan food that tastes good even if they throw a few vegan menu items in their restaurant i think that's going to really help m- make this change yeah that's what i was wondering about from what we kind of were talking about earlier like seems like so many restaurants and places of all kinds that, that serve food you know really want and need to have at least some vegan offerings and so i would think that people that are coming to this are maybe people already working or maybe even owning their own place and just saying, okay, I need to, uh, you know, make sure that we we have something more than just some sort of half-baked pasta dish or a, ser- a salad or, you know, whatever it might be. So I would think there'd be a lot of that to uh, to really uh, step things up at, at whatever their establishment is. So um, yeah. let's talk about one of the other things uh, coming up is the Nourish Your Life Through Food, a virtual six-part introduction to successful plant-based living. And that, I guess we should say, Technically started yesterday, but I'm sure people, if they're interested, as we talk more about this and they wanted to jump in, they could catch up by only having missed one day, one session. Yes, and a lot of people can't make it. So there, there all of those. So it's a six part. This is actually for people on the opposite end of the spectrum than the four week. Yeah. And this is someone who just their doctor said you need to eat more plant based or they watched a movie and they realize they need to eat more plant based, but they don't know how. Some people may not even know which end of the knife is the sharp edge. And so I'll, I start on the very basic level with that. And it's something that uh, is co-created with uh, my wife, Ashley Boudet, who's a vegan naturopathic doctor, which is pretty rare. A lot of them are not plant-based yeah so this is designed to really empower people to learn the core tools and techniques and to be empowered with some nutritional knowledge to be able to make the lifestyle stick yeah each week we we kind of build on the last week the sessions are live on zoom for 90 minutes uh it's from uh 9 30 to 11 a.m on tuesdays 
uh, and the set in Mountain Time, and then those sessions are recorded and available for 30 days after the program ends, so people can watch it as many times as they want. Oh, that's great. And again, if somebody's only hearing about it now and says, hey, I'd love to get in on that, they might have missed the first one yesterday, but they can totally catch up with it on the recorded Zoom. Yes, and a yeah. lot of people who signed up didn't make it onto the live session either so they're they're not really at a right they're not behind we do have there's a facebook group for question and answer in between the the sessions and both ashley and i are really committed to helping people embrace the lifestyle we've we realize we have about 35 combined years experience living as vegans so we share you know for us it's come second nature so we just want to help people not be intimidated to realize that it's so much easier uh, than you may think it is to embrace the lifestyle and i just like to show people how easy it is to create the food in a way that tastes good that's i think is one of my personal missions right which is great because you not only have that the thing with uh, with ashley so there's there's any if there's any nutritional or medical concerns anybody might have about you know embracing this those are addressed mm-hmm. kind of probably preemptively in most cases yeah definitely yeah all right let's take another caller and then we're going to talk about another of the uh, the workshops coming up this summer hi you're on talking animals with chef mark weinfeld yeah good morning a great conversation um, i have uh two questions um i've sort of been vegan vegetarian since probably the 80s but still consume fish and some eggs mm-hmm. And uh, the reason for that was I'm really concerned about, um, like, B12, getting enough mm-hmm. B12. And mm-hmm. also, um, I was I concerned myself with ingredients in food, you know, artificial flavors and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I kind of yeah. thought the vegan food is, uh, and I try to stay with whole foods, you know, make my own stuff. But it would be easier mm-hmm. if they had better ingredients. But what yeah. do you think about those two things? Well, I think those are, you know, great concern but those are important concerns you know we all want to make sure that we're getting uh the nutrients we need i do feel and b12 is a big topic duncan and i could probably do a whole show on that and yeah that's that's a six-part uh, series by itself yeah <laughs> but it is uh both vegans and non-vegans need to make sure they're getting adequate amounts of b12 uh that's one of the food one of the nutrients that i do supplement i one of my my main sources i like using fortified nutritional yeast which is uh called nooch also or hippie dust some people call it it gives you a nutty and a cheesy flavor and it's a source of plant-based protein it's used uh we sprinkle it on popcorn salads and bowls uh i do use um a spray supplement for b12 so every time i've had my b12 levels checked they've been fine and i think that's important for people to kind of back up their theory with uh the actual results of their blood test so mm. i think it's a personal matter but i know there's a lot of ways to meet our b12 needs uh on a plant-based side and what was the second part of your question? Well, if I may just drop back on what you just said on the B12. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I try to combine my uh, plant foods, you know, uh, say uh, lima beans and corn and different things to mm-hmm. try to mm-hmm. complete uh, protein. Um, and, you know, a lot of people that eat meat or work out and stuff like that say, well, no, mm-hmm. it's not the same type of protein. Um, mm-hmm. Because you don't the, the, even though I think we try to get a complete protein, is it necessarily... Mm-hmm. 
plant based is it actually a, a complete protein compared to you know say you know eggs or stuff like that um, well that's an that's another great question for a six part series too but I'll, I'll give you a short answer is that uh, the woman that promoted that idea of combining foods to create a complete protein. Meat mm-hmm. was looked at as the perfect protein because it had all the essential amino acids. And so mm-hmm. this woman, Frances Moore Lapel, I believe, she found that indigenous cultures were naturally combining foods that when combined had that same amino acid profile as meat. And so she um, put that theory out of beans and corn or lentils and rice to create the complete protein. She actually since regretted putting that out there and most modern, I mean, pretty much all modern medical practitioners would agree that it's just having, you don't need in every spoonful to have that complete amino acid profile as long as you're having uh, a wide variety of plant-based foods. And there's tons of food to get way more plant protein than we need. You could check out uh, veganbodybuilding.com and these guys are winning Guinness Book of World Records, mixed martial artist competitions, bodybuilding competitions, they're really thriving uh, on a plant-based diet without any concern of food combining. It's more just getting the protein from plants. So it's a it's a really great question, and a, a, that's a very short answer. <laughs> All right, Carla, I appreciate your questions. we got to scoot because we're running short on time with Mark, but thank you so much for your call. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So, Mark, i got a few more things I want to work in, but let's touch also on, this is coming up now, I think, well, sort of post-summer technically probably, but the three-day in-person vegan culinary jam session, which seems like, again, for someone that's super serious or probably at the professional level, I'm guessing, would be a great opportunity. Can you just kind of briefly describe what that involves? Yeah, the idea of that is gather together and share uh, creatively with other chefs, and so it is more and more of an advanced course mm-hmm. uh, and where it's just it's basically I custom tailor that based on who's attending yeah what advanced topics we cover so but it is the opportunity to get in person in the kitchen and I, I think Duncan the times are definitely at least now the virtual seems to be much more what people are comfortable with it's interesting of you know, a few years ago, the virtual wasn't really that appealing to people, and now I think it's much more appealing. Yeah, although this one we should note, I guess, is in person, right? The the uh, yeah the culinary jam session. So people travel to Colorado near Boulder, I guess, to to actually be in the kitchen with you, with yeah. directly sharing, like you say, techniques with the other participants. And so, uh, so that's uh, I think starts in September nineteenth. So again, that and everything else we've been talking about, uh, again, you can find on the uh, website. Uh, again, Again, chefmarkreinfeld.com. So a couple other quick questions, Mark, and then I think we're sort of reaching the end of our time. But uh, one thing is we've been talking about this, I've been thinking, I mean, some people who are really good at things are not necessarily good at teaching things. When did you kind of realize, hey, in addition to whatever else I've been doing in my career, I'm actually like and pretty good at teaching these techniques and, and helping people with their careers? Um you're, I could tell you're good at doing interviews because you ask wonderful questions. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm, I'm teaching. I'm teaching a six-part course on that shortly, so tune in. <laughs> uh, well, it, there's different way. Like I taught my first. It's interesting because as a child, I also wanted to be a teacher. So I did have that kind of as a child. Okay. Uh, I started doing cooking classes in 1998 back in my parents' home in Stony Brook. 
Wow. Uh, and it's just something that I've developed over time. And I think a lot of people, when they're doing something they love, it, it's almost like there's not a sense of time. Yeah. So they're like, you could go, oh, wow, I was just doing something for two hours or an hour and a half, and it didn't feel like I was watching the clock or, you know, just came naturally. And so I think that's what I encourage people is to try to tune into that part of yourself, that the things that you love, the things that give you that sense of connection and purpose and use that as like a guiding principle. And that's yeah. what the teaching has, has been for me. Oh, that's cool. And uh, at least one other question I have, which I think is pretty much rhetorical, but under what circumstance, if any, would you ever uh, run or own another restaurant? Uh, well, I like to say uh, before you run a restaurant, you need to take a psychological exam. And, <laughs> okay. Uh, if you if you fail the psychological exam, you can proceed to open a restaurant. I see. So if you're if you're raving nuts, then please you you have our blessing. It's, but it yeah. takes the same. It's that same thing. Some people are born with that. It's just and there's having a full restaurant with people loving the food and the music yeah. playing. It's a, it's an amazing feeling. Yeah. Uh, it's just a crazy lifestyle, and you definitely have to be wired for that. Right. Yeah. It takes a certain person, for especially me, to I do would, it for years. Right. I mean. Yeah. I, I love menu development and chef training, and I would love to participate in a restaurant setting again, more just focused on the recipe development and the chef training part of it. The the management of a restaurant is a is another uh, whole whole different uh, another story. Hold yeah. hold, a, hold another uh, set of nutcases. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, Mark. Well, this has been great. This we've been speaking with Mark Reinfeld again. We've been talking about his cooking classes and other things. All of which you can find out more information about and sign up for or if you're inclined at chefmarkreinfeld.com. And uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining us again on, on Talking Animals. Still other things we might have touched on, but we kind of we had some good questions from callers, and you know we kind of ran a little short on time. But I'm glad we covered everything that we did. So thank you so much for joining me again. Wonderful to connect with you, Duncan. I'm going to send you an invite to our six-part course. So cool for you to, to to stop in. And I'm sending you an invite to my six-part uh, course on interviewing. So <laughs> this, this, we'll just trade invites. Cool. All right, Mark. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Take care. Thank Bye -bye. you. And I'm going to speak with Julia Wang with Cornell Lab of Ornithology, where she oversees the BirdCast and Lights Out programs involved with the annual journey of the billions of migratory birds and ongoing data collection and other research to further protect the birds during future migrations and otherwise. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a piece from Julio Torres, quite relevant to our conversation with Mark uh, just a moment ago. Here's I Am Vegan by Julio Torres in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. Uh, I am uh, uh, Julio. Um, I'm originally from... El Salvador, um, but I am, um, I live in Brooklyn now, at a, uh, como se dice, uh, vegan queer collective, um, I am, uh, I am vegan, and I am so sorry, uh, in my experience, uh, the hardest part about being vegan is all of the, um, uh, the apologizing. Uh, people ask me if I miss uh, meat or dairy. 
I, I mean, I miss being liked. Um, I, I don't miss cheese, but I do miss getting asked to do things. I, uh, I miss my friends and I miss my family. That was Julio Torres in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called I Am Vegan, taken from an appearance on Conan. Now it's time to speak with Julia Wang with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for a brief overview of the lab and some explanation of BirdCast and lights out the programs that she oversees, both enhancing the safety of birds during their annual migration and more. This is Julia Wang on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Julia. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited for this opportunity to talk, to talk about the lab, broadcast, and lights out. Cool. Well, first, tell me a bit about the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. What is it? When was it founded? And what is its mission, uh, just at least in broad strokes? Oh, gosh. Okay. What year was it founded? 1915, I believe. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology, where I work, is a member-supported unit of Cornell University, which is in Ithaca, New York. And the lab is dedicated to studying birds and other wildlife in order to um, interpret and conserve biodiversity through research, education, and citizen science. And we work with um, citizens, uh, researchers, community across communities across the globe in order to do so. Uh, and there are a variety of projects housed under the lab name. You might be familiar with one or two of them, perhaps even all of them, um, eBird, Merlin, Birds of the World, um, Nest Watch, Feeder Cams, those are wow. lab props among others. Yeah. I work for a project specifically called BirdCast. Yeah, so let's find out a bit about that because if here's a focus of, of, of your work there, as we touched on briefly, is the annual migration of birds, which involves a population numbering, I guess, really into the billions mm -hmm. and sort of helping to enhance the safety of these birds, making that uh, as they make their journey and, and, and then doing kind of research and data collection hooked to that to sort of further understand what's going on and make things even better for subsequent migrations. Is that about right? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a really good summary of it. So um, I'm a project leader for BirdCast, which is a research consortium involving Cornell Lab of Ornithology researchers, as well as researchers from other institutions such as uh, Colorado State. And the um, idea behind BirdCast essentially is being able to provide real-time information and data products about bird migrations during the spring and the fall. And so our, work, our website is birdcast.info. There's a lot of information about how we do what we do, um, as well as our data products on that website. But the general gist of it is that uh, weather radars produce a lot of information, not only about weather, but about everything that's in the sky. And so what we do is we create models um, of the birds that are flying by pulling out that data from available weather data. And so with that, um, we have four major data products on our website, which allow you to track migration as it happens um, in your area down to a county level. One of those things is forecast maps, so you have a good idea if, if birds are going to appear in the next few days. Then we have live maps so that you can watch migration at night, and we have a migration dashboard um, newly this year, which allows you not only to follow those birds across your county, but to see 
um, approximately how many are flying, at what height they're flying, um, what species are involved. So what we hope to do is provide all this information about when birds are moving um, so that people are able to follow that huge, massive migration event across our country if they're interested in doing so, as well as provide resources about how to conserve those birds against the threats that they're facing. Unfortunately, we've lost about 30% of our bird populations in North America since 1970, so in less than a generation. Wow. And so we, um, as well as all the other projects at the lab, are doing can to help people protect those birds. And, and what, what <laughs> yeah, so thing you just mentioned before, and now this makes me also wonder, when you talk about the risks the birds are facing in, those, mm-hmm. in the migration, what are some of the biggest uh, risks that they do face? Absolutely. So um, there are many risks that are contributing to that overall decline, among them um, habitat loss, uh, outdoor cat, and building and glass collisions. And so building and glass collisions is specifically what I work on. Um, And one of the factors that influences that uh, risk is light pollution. Mm -hmm. What a lot of people know is that the majority of migratory birds in North America, about 80% of them are actually flying at night. It helps them conserve energy. It helps them stay away from the watchful eyes of hawks in the day, that sort of thing. And so when they're flying at night, they can become disoriented and sort of veered in by bright artificial light. And so what we often see happening is that um, these migratory birds are sort of pulled off their pathways towards urban centers producing a lot of light where they're presented with all of the dangers of an urban area, such as buildings and glass collisions. Um, That's something we're really concerned about because between 365 and 988 million birds are estimated to die in glass collisions in the U.S. every year. Oh, no, so so I was just going to say, obviously, a big office building or any kind of structure that they might potentially run into, I mean, there's not much we can do about that because those buildings are there. But is the key thing, like, what the kind of light pollution element is and, and what, what that might do to lower or, or raise, I guess, depending on how it's played out, the risk of the birds then colliding with those structures, those buildings? What we've seen is that birds are dramatically protected by um, a few major solutions. One of those, uh, one, the first primary measure by adding um, glass collision prevention uh, interventions on windows, such as stickers that birds can see or blinds, drawing blinds, that sort of thing. Um, and that really helps protect birds during the day. But at night, in terms of reducing light pollution um, effect, what we've seen being really, really effective is that um, reducing light overall helps disperse birds very quickly. And we've seen this again and again. And so what we ask people to do then is reduce their lighting as much as possible, whether that be in a commercial building or at home um, during migration season. And especially during periods where there's a great deal of migration happening, a period that we refer to as peak migration. Okay, uh, Julia, well, here's the thing. We're just about at the end of our time, so but let's let's review. So birdcast.info is one place that people to find out more. And then is there just a general website where people might want to support your work or efforts uh, just generally at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology that there's a website for that to, to find out more, but also 
I know this is we're right on the cusp of the fiscal year and there's a lot of programs that need some support and some help. Yeah, I really appreciate your bringing that up. So for information specifically about BirdCast, BirdCast.info, you can find out more about Lights Out and how to protect birds with the Lights Out Texas Project or Lights Out in general uh, under our Science to Action tab. And you can support the Cornell Lab of Ornithology at birds.cornell.edu. Okay, that's great. And we had an email or call right in and we don't have time, unfortunately, now because we're literally way behind now. But she, he was mentioning the Merlin app for cell phones, so we'll we'll have you maybe on another time to talk about apps and different things and bird watching. But we're out of time now, so thank you so much for joining us. This is Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks, Julia.